Do you know the difference between integrative medicine, naturopathic medicine, or functional medicine? If not, well, you're not alone. So I invited an expert to tell us the difference. We'll specifically talk about integrative medicine and how practitioners work within the practice of medicine most of us are familiar with in order to enhance health. Hi, I'm Dr. Mitzi Crockover, and welcome to Beyond the Paper Gown, where we take a look at women's health and the factors that both help and hinder our being the healthiest we can be. Today, we are going to take a look at how integrative medicine addresses some of the health challenges many women experience, such as symptoms of perimenopause, stress, and more. Today's guest is Dr. Denise Milstein. She is Director of Integrative Medicine at Mayo Clinic Arizona and Consultant in Women's Health Internal Medicine at the Mayo Clinic Arizona. Welcome, Denise. Thank you for having me. So I'm just going to start out and ask you, what is integrative health? So integrative medicine and health has a definition that's put forward for us by the Academic Consortium of Integrative Medicine and Health um, Groups, of which the Mayo Clinic has been a part for many, many years, over 10 years. Integrative medicine is focused on whole person health, really focused on the interaction and the relationship between the practitioner and the patient, utilizing all forms of treatments, including natural practices, in addition to conventional medicine, with the focus being on health and healing, which distinguishes it from our typical conventional medicine, which really focuses on disease management. That's really helpful. And you're an internist by training. I am. And also received training in integrative medicine. So tell us a little bit about that path. Sure. So I did my residency after medical school in internal medicine, thinking I was going to be a primary care physician. Uh, I always have really enjoyed the relationships that I have with my patients, getting to know patients and being able to walk with them and their health journeys over a long period of time. But I realized pretty quickly, about two to three years into practice, that I was short on tools to really help my patients be as healthy as they could be. So as an example, a woman would come in and say she's tired, and I would do what we would all do. I would check her thyroid, and I would check for anemia, and I'd give her a call and say, great news, your labs are fine. She'd say, fantastic. I'm still tired. And I wouldn't have a lot of tools to help her to figure out exactly what's going on to help her be as healthy as she could be. So I went on to do a fellowship in integrative medicine. This is a two-year fellowship, at least the one I chose to do, that I did through the University of Arizona, the Andrew Weil Center for Integrative Medicine. And then once you finish that, you are qualified to do integrative medicine consults or build an integrative medicine practice. So how do you explain the difference between integrative medicine and other forms of practice like naturopathic medicine or functional medicine, which seems to have grown in popularity recently? So you see a lot of these whole person approaches to health coming from a variety of philosophies. I would say integrative medicine is based on some very basic principles and 
areas where we all can probably use a little help and intention. That would be how you eat, how you move, how you manage your stress, how connected you are to the things that are truly important to you, and how much time you're really investing in making yourself as healthy as you can be. Naturopathic medicine comes from a different philosophy. It actually is its own form of medical school. And I would say functional medicine is most often somebody who is trained in either an allopathic or MD school or osteopathic DO school, and then goes on to do training in functional medicine. My opinion is that naturopathic medicine and functional medicine are very similar in their biochemical approach to managing health and disease. What I mean by that is they'll take very basic biochemical pathways and they'll look at how a variety of foods or lifestyle management or uh, many times supplements will interact with those pathways in an effort to enhance health or decrease disease. So there's a lot of overlap in these approaches, but they do come from a different foundation and a different set of training. So you work with the Women's Health Internal Medicine Clinic at Mayo, and how do you work with the other internist? How do you integrate your integrative medicine practice, if you will? So within women's health, I have a small primary care practice, but about 50% of my time is dedicated to doing consults in integrative medicine. Those patients come to me as a referral from other physicians and advanced providers. So for example, they might be seeing the neurology team for headache and the neurology team is managing their medications and many of their approaches to headache, but they come to integrative medicine to look at that whole person plan to see what other tools we might be able to offer to help people with that condition. I'm curious, because I'd assume many of the physicians you work with have never been exposed to integrative medicine, at least in their training. So how do your colleagues respond to what you're doing? And have you been able to educate them along the way? I interact very well with my colleagues because what I do takes a lot of time. And they don't often have the time in their schedule to really crack open these other parts of people's lives that are impacting their health. So for example, in the cancer practice, when you see your medical oncologist, they are very focused on what's the state of your disease? How are you responding to your treatment? Are we managing your side effects? What is our future plan? What is our future monitoring? And they don't have enough space in that interaction to talk about, are you caring for yourself? What's going on with your stress? How are you managing that? Are you connected to things that are at your spiritual core? Which supplements are you taking? Who manufactures them? At what dose? And teasing out all of those details. And those are the elements that I can provide. I don't know if you know the work of Dr. Gladys McGarry, 
She's a physician who is over 100 years old. She's the grandmother of holistic medicine. She actually lives here in Arizona. She gave me this beautiful analogy about what we do with holistic medicine. She says, consider your patient like a tree who has this intricate root system. And if they have a cancer, it's like there's a boulder in that root system. And the entire medical center is focused on that boulder. Do we cut it out? Do we blast it? Do we poison it? But your patient is not the boulder, they're the tree. And integrative medicine is about keeping that soil healthy while they continue to thrive as they undergo that necessary treatment. And I feel that that analogy really helps my colleagues to see I'm not trying to draw this patient away into what's previously been called alternative medicine. I'm really trying to help them stay as healthy as they can be so that they can complete their treatment, so that they can withstand these therapies, which, let's face it, are really hard. I'd like to shift a little bit and talk about women's health issues. You know, in my practice, we were always coming up against conditions like fibromyalgia or chronic fatigue syndrome, for example, that we just didn't have good answers for. So I'm really interested to hear about how you approach some of these women's health issues and what you found in your practice. So there are a lot of applications for integrative medicine in women's health, and this can be everything from stress management and anxiety I see a lot of women who have difficulty sleeping. They are go, go, go all day long, serving others, taking very little time for themselves and wondering why they can't shut that all down and get their eight hours of solid sleep at the end of the day. We see a lot of women who are perimenopausal or going through the menopause transition or continue to have menopausal symptoms. Things like acupuncture can be used for that. Many women live with headaches, chronic headaches, chronic daily headaches, migraines. Acupuncture and massage can be quite beneficial for that. And then any of the pain syndromes. So you mentioned fibromyalgia or what we're considering now central sensitization syndrome or chronic fatigue syndrome. Many of those conditions are amenable to integrative medicine strategies as well. So can you give us an example about how you would approach the patient with those kinds of pain syndromes? Sure. So I would go back to the basics. What's the fuel you're putting in your body? What does your nutrition look like? How are you moving? Is it enough? Is it too much? Is it not enough? And is it in the right form? How are you incorporating your stress? Is your stress driving you to be productive and creative like a deadline? Or is your stress something that's needling away in the background and is causing you to feel heavy and weighted? How do you sleep? What's really important to you? If it's most important to you to be out in nature and breathe fresh air and yet you find yourself in an office building all the time or in your house with your air conditioning on, how do we find ways to connect people to those things that actually will help them? And then we'll 
also go through things like supplements and natural products. Many women are depleted in magnesium and they benefit from having magnesium replaced. Many women have high inflammatory states and they benefit from a gentle anti-inflammatory, something like turmeric. Uh, so we'll incorporate these on a very individual basis to try to make the woman as healthy as she can be. It seems like there's an article every day about the health benefits of supplements like turmeric and others, and it seems like an easy way to improve one's health, but I think it's also confusing. How would you advise people on how to go about taking any of these? I think you need to understand why you're taking a natural product, at what dose it has been used or studied, and to what end. What I see very often is the person who either dabbles in the supplements, takes one sometimes, another one a different day, or has started taking one because they read it somewhere or a friend suggested it. And then down the line, you ask them, why are you taking this vitamin E? And they have no idea. So just like with the medications, you should understand what it is you're trying to achieve with that product and how you're measuring that or monitoring that. Uh, and also your advice as to the appropriate dosing. The truth is natural products and botanicals often have scientific data behind them. Most of them have been studied to some extent, and that's at least a place to get information and to make an informed decision from. And I would assume like anything that we might ingest that there might be some adverse effects. Absolutely. So melatonin is a great example. People think of melatonin for sleep. The dose for melatonin for sleep is actually quite low between one and three milligrams. But you'll see on the market products that are five, 10 and 20 milligrams. And there's a paradoxical effect. The higher the dose, the more agitating it is. So you might think, well, one milligram really helped. I should try 10 and you get the reverse <laughs> effect. Another common mistake is to think that things cannot interact because they're natural or because you can buy them without advice or a prescription. And that is absolutely incorrect. We talked about turmeric and one of the downsides of turmeric is its interactions, particularly with cancer therapies. So it mm. is paramount importance that you tell your physician, your healthcare professional team, what you are taking if you are having chronic disease management. So here's a challenge and I'll put myself in this bucket. You know, we always ask as physicians, what medications are you on? What supplements are you taking? And patients, you know, will tell us, but if we've never had training, then we really don't know what to do with that information. So any suggestions in terms of how to manage that? Absolutely. So you could go to see an integrative medicine provider. <laughs> you could also talk to your pharmacist about it. So they will have many databases and ways to look for things like interaction and suggested dosing. The National Institute of Health has the NCCIH the National Center for Complementary and Integrative Health, they have 
great resources that are freely available online. There are some other resources which are a subscription or you would access them through a library. So the Natural Medicine Database is something that most academic medical libraries will have. So the typical patient isn't going to have access to that but their physician might, particularly if they work inside a large health system. There is also a platform called consumerlab.com, which provides mm -hmm. a lot of high-level patient-directed information about the state of the science regarding specific supplements, as well as testing supplements to see if they are what they say they are, which is a huge problem with the natural products because they are ineffectively regulated. They are regulated, but not in an effective way. Now, I don't have any relationship with those platforms that I mentioned, but they are tools that I personally incorporate to making decisions. Do you do a lot of testing? So for example, with respect to magnesium, are you testing early on to see if there's a deficiency and then you're treating to those numbers? Or is it more based on symptoms? And I'd also wonder about your thoughts, for example, um, on other testing, such as hormonal status. So at the risk of providing a really less than satisfactory answer, it all depends. If you're looking for B12 deficiency, it is very easy to test for that. It is very easy to get insurance to cover for that. I would say the same is true for a vitamin D deficiency. Magnesium is tricky because, as you know, magnesium exists inside the cells. So when you check a serum magnesium level, if it's low, the person is low on magnesium. But if it's normal, you don't know if they're low or not. So very often, I will just go ahead and treat with that three months of magnesium to see if there's a response. You asked about hormone testing. I'll comment briefly that there is a role for hormone testing, although maybe not to the extent that some women have been sold on. So in a woman who's gone through menopause, her estrogen levels should be very, very low. If she comes in not having had a period for 12 months and having hot flashes, the estrogen level of zero is of zero help to me because I already know that it's low. So the role for testing in hormones, particularly around perimenopause and menopause, is really when you're answering a question. Perhaps she's a woman who's had a hysterectomy and she still has her ovaries and you don't know if she's menopausal or not. Well, then there's only really one way to tell, which is through labs. But we typically will prescribe hormone therapy based on symptoms and not based on a target lab level. So she could have a low estrogen but feel very good and her hot flashes are much better. That doesn't mean that we need to increase her dose and vice versa as well. So it really depends on the individual and what they're after in terms of their therapy. I know that personally I have a number of friends that have gone to various practitioners and undergone an entire slew of tests, some of which I was not familiar with, but some of which I was, but was very confused as to why they were even getting those tests. I think we 
can overtest people. Uh, I always think no matter what test you order, that you should know what you're going to do with the result when it returns. And I would caution people against some of these lab panel alternative tests that then reflex to recommending a slew of supplements or natural products. It's not that that's the wrong thing to do. It's not my training to do it that way. And I just would make sure you understand what you're entering into before you even pay for the test to be done. There are also companies that are using genetic testing, for example, to recommend personalized diets. Do you use genetic testing at all in your practice? So we use pharmacogenomics, and I think it's one of the most exciting areas of medicine. I don't think there is the right diet for all people. There's Mitzi's right diet and Denise's <laughs> right diet. And those might overlap, but they're not going to be exactly identical. And same thing when we approach medications, currently particularly around lipid-lowering medications or mood medications, things for depression and anxiety. Pharmacogenomics, how your body metabolizes certain medications, can be incredibly helpful, really particularly for that woman who has a history of having had reactions to medications or side effects to medications, and so she's very sensitive to medications, she very well could be right, and pharmacogenomics can help us understand that. That field is definitely one in its infancy that I think by the time our careers are over, will be remarkably different than it is now and is already now so much different than when you and I were in medical school. You know, you and I talked a little bit prior to this podcast about the role of botanicals. Tell us a little bit about what a botanical is and how you might use that in practice. So people will often talk about herbal medicine and the preferred term would be to say botanical medicine. Botanicals can be anything from drinking a cup of chamomile tea after dinner as you're getting ready to relax and really wind down for the day to taking a supplement. Botanicals tend to be gentle, so you could read that also as being less potent so you're really using them when you want to have a gentle effect. But that doesn't mean they don't interact with your medications. So it's a good idea to check those against your medications, particularly if you're in cancer treatment or you've had a transplant or you're really reliant on a medication, say, for your depression or for your heart health. I use botanicals in a slew of different ways. Like I said, from a medicinal tea, some of my favorites being chamomile, lemon balm, peppermint, dandelion, for a variety of different reasons. And then you'll see other botanical medicine used as supplements. This can get a little tricky because they will work with synergy. And so you really want to trust that the combination is right for you before you go to the health store and pick the stress formula off the shelves. 
are you looking for the stress formula that gives you energy or are you already agitated and you're looking for the stress formula that brings you down a little bit? And those are different plants. So somebody should probably advise you or you should do your own research when you're looking at botanical medicine. You know, I've also seen or actually used some adaptogen-based non-alcoholic drinks. So is that just a marketing ploy or are those really something that could be useful? So from an herbalist perspective, an adaptogen will work in your body the way your body needs it to work. If you go back to our medical training, that sounds like a farce. But these have been used for hundreds of years and can definitely be used for health support. I will offer, though, that they need to be in conversation with the other supplements or botanicals or foods that you're putting into your body. I can't comment specifically on adaptogen mocktails, although I would like to learn more. Um, I think that the challenge for many people is that there's so much out there and it's hard to discern what's useful and what can be harmful. You know, it really can seem overwhelming. How would you advise someone who's trying to figure out what might be useful to them? I think the agenda of the person providing the advice is incredibly important, followed by the training and the expertise of that person. So if you go to a practice where they are recommending a slew of labs and a slew of supplements and natural products, you have to understand that there's a business model behind that. I truly hope to believe all of these healthcare professionals are thinking they're doing the right thing by their patients, but we have to be cautious to, to be aware of that dynamic. It also surprises me when people come in and they're taking advice from a provider who they don't know the background of that provider. So let's take, for example, the cancer practice. So I'll see a patient who's had a distance consult with somebody who's recommended a number of different things. And that could be eating a lemon every day or doing some unusual type of enema or on and on the list of suggestions will go. And I'll say, well, let's look up the background of the person who's providing this advice to you. And when a practice is a legitimate practice, there should be a section that says about us. And in that about us, there should be information about the person giving the advice. And I can almost guarantee if that person has been well-trained, they will be very proud of that fact and they will include that in their biography. So this is a really simple place to start. Where did they get their education? What education and degree did they get? How many years of experience do they have? And that can help you understand whether you want to wholeheartedly incorporate that person's advice. I was thrilled to hear that there was an integrative medicine practice at Mayo Clinic. But what if you're in an area where there isn't an integrative medicine practice? Any suggestions with respect on how to get those kinds of services? 
So one of the silver linings of the pandemic is the amount of virtual care that's being done. That can be done often across state lines, although medical licensure might come into play with that, especially at the end of 2022. The Andrew Weil Center for Integrative Medicine at the University of Arizona keeps a list of its graduates, which is above 1,000, I believe, at this point, spanning literally the globe. So you could look at a source like that to find a physician or an advanced provider who is in your area or who works in the area of medicine that you're most interested in. Thank you. So I know that we talked a little bit about this before, but I want to go back and talk a little bit about some specific issues that a lot of women experience and maybe some general kinds of things that you might suggest that they would consider in terms of taking care of themselves. So you mentioned stress. Let's start there. So stress is pervasive. It's actually become this badge of honor that we're so busy or we don't sleep enough uh, that we're just constantly go, 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 multitasking, never caring for ourselves. So I think it's worth finding an intentional way to address your stress and have a plan to deal with it. Very often, I'll use the Mayo Clinic Guide to Stress-Free Living, which was written by a physician, Dr. Amit Sood, who was at Mayo Clinic in Rochester for many years. But what I would encourage listeners to consider is doing something intentional that they then stick with, not doing a little bit of this and a little bit of this, but finding something that really brings their stress level down and staying with it to see how it changes their life. One of the easiest things to do for stress is to breathe. So we forget that we often will hold our breath when we're stressed or uh, we forget that we can control the way we breathe. And that can be enormously helpful in offsetting that sympathetic overdrive, that fight, flight, or freeze. Just slowing your breath, prolonging exhalation sounds too good to be true, but it actually is quite effective. Just the suggestion of that made me take a nice deep breath and I felt much better. So thank you for that. Um, And then, you know, again, we talked a little bit about some of the symptoms of perimenopause and menopause, um, such as hot flashes, uh, mood swings, um, and even, um, uh, you know, difficulty with sleep. So any suggestions there that you utilize? So if you're perimenopausal or going through the menopause transition or have symptomatic menopause, then the most effective way to reduce your symptoms is to take hormone therapy. But not all women have that as an option, perhaps because of the rest of their medical history. They've had a history of breast cancer, blood clots, or high blood pressure, and it becomes not an not an option for them. So in that situation, we will use some integrative medicine strategies in terms of natural products. We already talked about magnesium. I'm a big fan of acupuncture and the science actually does support that it has some effect. 
The North American Menopause Society endorses hypnotherapy, clinical hypnosis for hot flash management, and there are many other strategies that we can take for the women going through menopause who may or may not be also incorporating hormone therapy. Let's talk a little bit about sleep. It seems to be, you know, something that we all know that we need, um, and some people can't get to sleep or some can't stay asleep. Any suggestions that you might have that work for many people? So our pattern matters when it comes to sleep. The natural pattern is for the world to darken, for dusk to come, for our lives to be more quiet, and then for us to ease into sleep. The modern life is to sit with a screen or a device in our face, telling our brains that it's still time to be awake. And then we quick do our bedtime routine, lie down and think we can just shut it all off and go straight to sleep. So encourage people to think about what they're doing. It's often called sleep hygiene, but I think about it more as being sort of carried into sleep and designing your day so that your body, your nervous system is getting that signal that it's time to rest. If you need to change the times that you sleep because you travel between time zones or you work overnight shift and you need to sleep into the day, melatonin can be quite effective for that. If you are not sleeping because your brain is busy and won't shut down, things like meditation or a calming medicinal tea might help with that. We see a lot of benefit with guided imagery, progressive muscle relaxation, which is where you tense one area of your muscles and then you release it and then you move up and then down the body with that. We're seeing some interesting information about using story for sleep. So those of us who have kids told our kids bedtime stories to get them to relax and fall into sleep. And we're seeing some of the mind-body approaches using the same thing, but for adults. Oh, that's fascinating. So we didn't even know when we were doing that, that we were practicing integrative medicine with our children. There you go. <laughs> um, well, this has been really helpful. And what one thing would you challenge our listeners to do or adopt to continue their own um, healthy journey? I only get one thing. You can have more than one and they can pick one. How's that? I think if you want to be healthy, you need to think about how you eat, what you're putting into your body, how you rest. And an area we didn't talk a lot about is how connected you are to the things that make you feel alive. If you love nature or music or animals or you have a spiritual or religious practice, making sure that you carve out time to prioritize that in your life, even if it's only for a small portion of your day, that you are aware of what's at your core and you feed that. That's perfect um, and very important. Dr. Denise Milstein, thank you so much for joining us today. Great information. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'd like to emphasize a few points, such as how Dr. Milstein's practice is truly integrated with allopathic or conventional medicine. 
You can see how each approach is valuable and is complementary to the other. In fact, you may have heard the term complementary medicine, which alludes to that relationship. Also, if you're looking for an integrative medicine practitioner, do your homework and look for someone with good training and credentials, as we talked about earlier. Finally, you don't need a practitioner to start integrating good habits into your day. Dr. Milstein's recommendations to eat healthy, get rest, and connect with what's enjoyable and important to you are things you can start doing now. I'd love to know which steps you're going to take first. Let us know at beyondthepapergown.com. Our podcast is co-produced by Patrick Shambayati and me, along with associate producer Kyla McMillian. Thanks for listening.